What's up, everyone? Another intro to a fantastic episode of Elbows Tight Podcast today. John, how was that episode? I thought it was really good. I had a good time. That was a fun one. Yeah, we have the amazing Katie Egan. She is a brown belt under James Foster 300 down in Kent, Washington. She is a huge competitor in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and also she's uh, a big advocate for women in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. This episode is so fun. It's the insight that she gives, especially as a female competitor and a woman that's primarily in all male gyms and schools, uh, it, it was really good. A lot of good laughs. I think I, I was like, "This is hilarious." So not only that, but I liked uh, that was the first time we had the opportunity to get a referee's perspective. Yeah, so I enjoyed that. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, she's she competes and she also refs for IPBJF right now. So uh, she has a lot of different perspectives on how jujitsu is and how it should be right now. And she obviously talks about how we get more women in jujitsu, which John and I are big advocates for. And we constantly talk about how we need more women in jujitsu, and not only just in jujitsu, but we we talk to multiple women that say the same thing. There's not enough women that compete True. in jujitsu, so. It's a great episode. This episode was three months in the making, by the way, because she is so busy with everything. It was really hard to get her on the show, and we got her, and it was well worth the wait. So, um, I'm glad. I'm glad it happened. So, but John, what do we have for beverage of the day? Oh, Katie's beverage of the day was water. We didn't really talk about it, but I did. I wish I would have asked her what those dolls were on the right hand side of the video for anyone that watches. Those are Funko Pops. Oh, interesting. She has a bunch of Funko Pops. You can see in the background, if you guys are nerds like I am, she has a 3D printer in the background. Yeah, I was looking at all kinds of stuff in the background. Yeah, yeah. What is that? My dog came in, and she's like, I'm distracted by your dog. I was like, I'm distracted by all your tech in the background. This stuff is so cool. (laughs) 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 What happened in this interview? That's right. So, but John, what's our beverage of the day, dude? We have a pineapple pilsner. And I got to say, it was pretty good and smooth. Not like that nasty... I think coconut one you got me that one time. The pineapple one's on point. Yeah, this thing is delicious. Which is a Kona Brewing Company, Pineapple Pilsner. I'm not sure what the content is. It must be pretty light. No, it's 6%. Wow, I'm getting better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is tasty. a limited release, too. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty good. Yeah, no, this was a, I saw this in the, the, the gas station. I was like, ooh, that looks like a good beer. Just because the can, like I just showed it. If you guys are watching the YouTube video, I just showed it. Um, but it's, you know, it's like a guy surfing. It's got a pineapple on it. You know, the colors are great. But it is also delicious. And I'm not going to lie, halfway through the second one, I was like, just don't, should... just don't leave a pineapple on your doorstep. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, feel free to Google it. I don't know what you're talking about. I think you should Google it. <laughs> So, um, but if you guys want to check out this beer, we're going to have a description or uh, a link down in the description below in our YouTube and our video or our podcast description. Also, be sure, like we say at every episode, be sure to like a leave a five star review on iTunes, like and subscribe on YouTube, hit that bell notification so you know so you know when we upload a video. Also. All our social media, Elbows Tight Podcast, Elbows Tight Pod on everything, com, and all that fancy stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this. This episode was highly requested by multiple people, and it, it delivers. This is a this is a great episode, and I'm so happy we were, we were able to, to fit it in our busy schedule. Agreed. So, um, but, John, you got anything else? Uh, nope, nothing else. So thank you guys so much for watching, and we'll catch you later. Peace.
Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Elbows Tight Podcast. It's your host, Travis and John. John, how are you doing today? Man, I'm good. I'm glad to be off work today. I, I bet. It's a Saturday. Who likes working on Saturdays? Not me. Especially when you're super busy, huh? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been beautiful out here in Washington State lately, too. It's been insane. I think it's probably 80 degrees outside over, over by where we live. And we bought, like, this 10-foot kiddie pool. Uh, well, it's not really a kiddie pool. It's, like, 10 feet by, like, 6 feet. And so we're going to go get the baby and put it in it and sit in the sun after this, too. So it's going to be real nice. You could join us. Well, I mean, you live next door to a lake. Yeah, but that's... that's okay, that's a good point. But... <laughs> I mean, literally, the lake is within walking it's, distance. It's, it's within walking distance. It's like, I don't know, maybe five-minute walk from here. I'd, I would have to go through someone's house, though, and be like, hey, I'm just here for the lake. Just, I'll be right, I'll be right back. <laughs> so, But uh, without further ado, we have a very special guest today. We've actually had multiple people, I haven't told Katie this, but we've had multiple people ask for her to come on our show. And so when she finally was able to, I was super excited because there's, like I said, there's a lot of people out here that want to hear from her. Uh, but... It is Katie Egan. Egan, uh, Katie, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks good. for having me. I'm glad we finally were able to find a time to make it work. Oh, I know. We were just talking about this before we started recording, and it's it's been like three months in the making. It's like Katie's a big competitor. You'll hear about all that later, and she's she's super busy. So uh, we finally got one day that works for both of us, and she's getting out of responsibilities, but don't tell anyone that. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, once again, Katie, can you go ahead and give us like a brief description of who you are and uh, where you're coming from and whatnot? Yeah, uh, so I'm Katie Egan. Um, I'm a brown belt under James 300 Foster here in Kent, Washington. Um, I got my purple and brown belt from him. I started jujitsu down in Dallas, Texas, and got my blue belt under Alex Martins. Um, I'm a pretty avid uh, competitor, both gi and no gi, pro fights, IBJJF, all that stuff. Um, and then I also teach um, jujitsu at Foster Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And then I run the Women Who Roll um, blog. Yeah, so I, I noticed in your blog uh, that you started jujitsu in 2014 in Texas. Are you originally from Texas, or did you migrate there also? No, I'm actually originally from the Midwest. Um, I grew up in um, Madison, Wisconsin, and hmm. uh, as soon as I was done with college, I wanted to get away from the snow, and <laughs> I moved as far as I could away from it. <laughs> so how Madison, Wisconsin, I know that place because of CrossFit. The CrossFit Games were held in Madison, Wisconsin for quite a few years. Were you there during the time when uh, that they were being held there? Um, I might have been. <laughs> I don't really know anything about CrossFit except for, like, Instagram, what I know. Yeah. Uh, I've never done CrossFit, so I might have been, but if if I did, it wasn't. You I, I didn't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's pretty funny because uh, not, I've never met someone actually from Madison, Wisconsin. So I want to know first. Did you get any snow in Texas? Because they get it. Uh, we did, uh, but not much. And I was luckily not there this year when they got pounded. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, my my daughter lives there, so she she talks about it. And she was she moved out of Louisiana. They did not think they'd ever get snow like that in Texas. No, the ice is more the issue than the snow, just because mm -hmm. of how the highways are made. They're like they go up above everything, and so the if it gets cold, it freezes, and then like little cars can't go up, and it's a huge issue. Oh yeah. So do you like Washington better than Texas? Then I definitely do. Um, <laughs> I, I like, while I liked the lack of snow in Texas, I didn't like the heat. It just got way too hot. Um, and I really like outdoor stuff. So I, I love living in the Pacific Northwest. It's beautiful. 
Yeah, it's, uh, we don't get too heavy of snow up here either, which is really nice, but we do get really bad black ice, obviously. I mean, if you've lived here for longer than you know one year, you, everyone has seen multiple vehicles flipped over on the freeway on straight lines just from black ice and whatnot. When I first moved up here, I had a two-wheel drive truck, funny story, and everyone was like, oh, you're going to have a two-wheel drive truck. You need four-wheel drive. You need... The first truck I saw flipped over on the freeway was a big lifted four-wheel drive truck. I was like, well, I guess that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so... But let's go into your a little bit of your jujitsu uh, backstory. So you started in 2014, right? Jujitsu, yes. and you had a voucher that you thought was for a kickboxing class, right? And then you you jumped into jujitsu. What was that like? Your first class. So I walked in and I um, want I tried out the kickboxing class, and it was 100% cardio based. So I'm there, and you know we're not even hitting bags. We're like shadow boxing, and I'm like what is this? This is not what I want. <laughs> and then afterwards there's uh there was a jujitsu class and I see them and they're like trying to strangle each other. And I'm like, no, that's what I want. And I, and the guy was like, well, you paid for a month, so you can try it. So then the next day I showed up and I tried it and um, it was all men. Uh, so I was the only female there and they didn't have a loner gi small enough for me. Uh, so I actually like tried it out in like sweatpants and a sweatshirt because like just or and um, like this huge gi top that was like way too big. But I fell in love and I didn't go to another kickboxing class after that. And I started going every day and here I am. So how how soon after because like you mentioned earlier, you're a big competitor and trying to get more women into competitive jujitsu. How soon after did you start competing when you when you got nipped by the bug? Three months. Wow. Three months. Wow. Wow. So I start. I had. Uh, so when I started, I started going every single day. Um, and uh, so I, I think for the first three weeks, I didn't miss an entire like a day at all. Um, and so I think I progressed really quickly. But then I there was a all women's tournament in Texas, and I, it was for a fund fundraiser. So I was like, okay, it's good experience. Um, you know, everyone told me oh, you lose your first tournament anyways, doesn't matter, just get it over with. And then I went out and I actually won the whole thing. Um, but it was just, it was the first time I rolled with a girl was my first tournament. And um, and then after that, I was like, I want more. And <laughs> now here I am, seven years later. So so how often do you actually compete? And was there any like time that it was a kind of like a lull, like you're like, oh, I'm I'm good for a little bit? Or have you been like, on it ever since that first competition um i so shortly after my first competition i actually got i um tore my rotator cuff so i started jujitsu in 2014 and i trained for about four months and then i didn't train again until 2015 um but then since then i have been competing uh, about once a month except for covid um i actually did three tournaments in the last month um, which is why I haven't had time to come <laughs> talk to you guys. Um, but I, I really enjoy it. And I really think it's the best way to see where I'm at and, and see what I need to work on. Um, because I am smaller than 95% of the people I train with and a different belt level or anything like that. It's the best way to see how I need to progress. Yeah. So when, when you got injured, you said you tore your rotator cuff. Was that during jujitsu practice, or was that completely something irrelevant from combat sports? 
Uh, it was during um, a jujitsu tournament. Ooh. Um, I ended up getting slammed on my shoulder, and it 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 tore my rotator cuff. Oh no! How, how it was, was that... a complete accident. It wasn't like an intentional slam, but you know, white belts they you know they get excited, and then yeah, it, and it, that's exactly what happened. And then um, it was one of those I didn't know it was actually injured, so I kept training on it. It was like, oh, it hurts, but everything hurts because of jujitsu. And then um, I've gotten a lot smarter about injuries now and knowing when it's sore versus hurt. Um, but And then it just kept tearing a little bit. And then uh, luckily I didn't need surgery, but I had to take off a, a lot of time. Did you get to train at all once you figured out that it was messed up? or? Uh, well, I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yes, I kept training, um, and then eventually got to the point where it was it was like I couldn't lift my arm high enough, and so I took off. So in 2014, I started, and I took off from May until about December. I restarted in that December. So, what was it like leading up to your first competition? Because I know there could be a lot of anxiety from you're like holy crap i'm actually about to do this i'm about to i'm going to go against someone i have no idea who they Tra- are travis is in the same boat that's why he's asking these yeah questions. yeah i haven't competed yet shame on me i'm a i'm a seasoned blue belt with two stripes on it you know big big dog <laughs> over here <laughs> uh but i have not competed yet john has competed he competed once as a white belt and uh, what you got second place third place third place third place in the uh extreme masters division but <laughs> hey it was, it was the old folks division but whatever <laughs> they came out with walkers and they had to have aarp yeah, to make sure yeah. that they could compete <laughs> hey i was happy that was the, that was the first time they were my age group at around my size yeah yeah I yeah was like, perfect yeah so what was it like leading up to that first competition for you what was your mindset coming up i was okay everyone at the gym told me i was gonna lose which is it sucked because i was like no i don't want to lose i'm a very competitive person and so then I got really bad nerves. Um, and I, I have worked on the mental aspect of, tr- of competing a lot to get that under control. But before my first tournament, I didn't eat dinner because I was had so much anxiety and so many nerves that I just couldn't keep anything. Everything sounded disgusting and I could not eat. And then in between my first and second match, or maybe it was my second and third match, I felt like I was going to throw up from just all the nerves because I wasn't handling it well. Um, I think there's a lot, you know, we, we learn jujitsu and we learn on these moves, but there's a lot of mental part behind it. And especially if you're a competitor, like you have to learn how to deal with that, which is, which is good because it, it helps outside of the mats too. Um, but I definitely didn't know that as a white belt. Yeah. So uh, I, I hear a lot about, mentality i think gordon ryan literally just released a dvd set on bjj fanatics of the mentality of competing at a high level like what does that look for you and what how has it how has it changed over the years so mental training is something that i work on almost daily um i've done a lot of um reading and um like podcasts and books and stuff to learn about it and to kind of change that internal dialogue into um, now I still feel nervous, but instead of putting a negative connotation on it, like physiologically nerve and excitement, they're exactly the same thing. Your body feels the same way. It's just what your brain is telling yourself. 
So when you say I'm nervous, you're internalizing that and you're putting that negative connotation on it. Versus if you say I'm excited, it's a positive thing. It's something to look forward to. And even just that little shift can really change how you go into a match. That's a good point. You know, for me, when I was doing it, because I was super nervous as well, and I kind of wish my family didn't go. I feel like I would have been a little bit like, but my daughter was competing too, so they were all there. But for me, what I the trick I did is I was just like, why not? Why why can't I do good at this? You know, I've been practicing for a couple of years. Like, there's no reason why you can't do good. And that's all I thought about. I was like, I'm just going to go in small goals. I was like, no matter what happens, I'm not getting submitted in 15 seconds. <laughs> so once I hit that goal, I was like, all right, we're golden. <laughs> so what was it uh, after the first competition what was it like after your your first match and you you obviously won your first match right where you're like holy crap wait i can do this like was it like a, a, a switch you're like yes I'm, I'm doing this uh so after my first match i somehow i don't even remember learning a triangle but i somehow got her into a triangle and submitted her with a triangle and i was like oh i know a lot more than i think I can win this. I'm going to prove everyone wrong who said I was going to lose that first tournament and win it. And then, you know, I think my second match, I was down like two points and I was like, no, I'm not losing. And I came back and won that. And then I won my finals by a submission by a rear naked choke. And I was like, see, I can do this. And it was, it was, I think that mentality helped me. Like after I got through the first one, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to lose. And, and then it was less about being nervous and just like proving them wrong. Yeah, that's a that's that's very interesting. Do you feel like because you're the first time you rolled with a woman was at a competition, like all that beforehand rolling with uh, me, larger men or stronger or whatever, do you feel like that kind of sets you up for success even more? Because you're like, hold on a second, this is like you're my size. This feels this feels much easier. I honestly felt like I could throw them around, which is <laughs> complete exaggeration because I'm not that strong. But they felt so light. Um, I, I think I was like 125 and the closest training partner at that time was 155. And so compared to them, they felt so light. And I just, I was like, oh, this is nothing. If I can do that to him, like you're, you're nothing compared to that. And, and I still use that mindset now because, uh, James Foster is my coach and he's 300 pounds. And so when I go into open class, I'm like, well, you know, how bad can it really be if I can deal with the pressure from Coach Foster? How bad? Yeah, no, that's true. So what was it like the first time you, you met James Foster? Because he, he is a large man, multiple-time world champ as, and in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And he's like, what, 6'5", 300 pounds or something like that? He is a massive man. Wow. If you guys have never met or seen James Foster, look him up. James 300 Foster. He's a He's a... First of all, his technique is incredible, and I've watched a bunch of his stuff, and I'm like, man, this guy is really good. What was it like walking in, and he like walked up, you're like, hi? <laughs> what was that like? So when I went in, I had, I, I, I've eaten my word so many times, but I had this like kind of preconceived notion that a ultra-heavy guy couldn't teach. At that time, I was a rooster, a rooster female, anything. Not that he couldn't teach me stuff, but it was going to be different for my game, and I remember going in like, okay, well, I'm going to try it. Um, it was my boyfriend, now husband. It was his gym where he started jujitsu. And, and I told him when I moved up, I was going to, you know, try out all these gyms because jujitsu is something um, that's important to me. And I needed to find a good fit for me, not just for him. And so my, and when I tried it, 
I was honestly blown away by his jujitsu because he's a 300 pound guy, but he moves like a lightweight. Like he, he moves, he's moves his body in ways that I feel like 300 pounds shouldn't be able to move. Like he, he has this like, um, like flying X pass type thing move. And I'm like, you, that's too, 300 pounds shouldn't be able to move like that. Yeah. The fact that you just said flying, I'm like, in yeah, my I'm head, like, I'm like, Oh no, please. Fly, no. Fly. <laughs> no, that's great. So did you try any other gyms out when you first moved up to Washington or when you moved in and you met James that, or professor Foster, that, that was it. Or did you try other gyms? I did try other gyms. I really wanted to make sure, especially um, even at that point as a four stripe blue belt, I was an avid competitor um, and a sponsored athlete. I wanted to make sure that it was a good fit for me. So I did try a couple other gyms, um, but uh, Foster Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu ended up being like the perfect fit for me, especially finally having um, female training partners. Was there a lot of females when you first came there or was it just a few? Uh, no, there there was uh, white belts all the way up to black belt. Oh, wow. And so having a female black belt was a huge pull um, towards Foster. Yeah, we we interviewed uh, Sonia, Sonia Salen. Or she, she recently got married and just changed her last name. But she's the owner of Combat's Arts Academy in Seattle. And when we went to go drop in to her school, uh, we talked about it on the podcast. It was literally there was probably a forty person class of all women yeah. of every belt color, and I was like, I was like, oh my god, that's amazing! Like, how did you do that? You know what I mean? Like, we, the my 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 whole perspective of jujitsu was, you know, most of it's men and this that, and it's hard to get women into it and whatnot, unfortunately. But when we walked into her gym, I was like, how did you yeah, do this? We were we were like, wow. So you and your org, and your blog is based around getting more women into jujitsu. How how do we do that? How do we get more women into jujitsu? I think it's creating that safe place. I don't. I know, um, like social media makes fun of those like safe places, but it. it I feel like it's really important for women in jujitsu to feel like they can grow and they can prosper in a gym, and it's not just a boys' club. You know, um, there's there's a lot of like not all gyms are, are friendly to women. There's still a lot of gyms that have like that locker room talk and it's boys will be boys and stuff, but that you're not going to get women to feel comfortable and to grow to their potential if you're having that. And I I also think the other thing is, is to recognize that why women get into jujitsu. Some women do it just because it's a sport, but some women are coming from um, past trauma um, abusive relationships that are going into jujitsu, wanting to learn it to defend themselves. And if you can't give them a safe place where they don't feel like they're a victim and if, and you're not, and you're not building them up, they're not going to stay and they're not going to be able to work past their trauma. Yeah. How, how did, how's it, he has two daughters. Both yeah. of his daughters are in jujitsu. I was going to say what I've seen that the struggle is. So my, my, I have one daughter that's 14 and she went for probably the last two and a half years. And just recently she's like, I'm not going to go anymore. And I know for her, the big obstacle was there's no other women in class except for maybe Riley. Who's, who's, a, who's a silent assassin. And Riley's a straight up killer. And uh, so my daughter's like, she'll go, she's in the class with me, adult class. And uh, unfortunately, if Riley's not there, then the odds are her partner's going to be close to 200 pounds. And she just doesn't enjoy that. She she dealt with it for a long time and just 
the lack of women just got her out of it. My youngest daughter's still in it, but in her class, there's a lot more girls. Yeah. So she doesn't mind it. She partners with them. She partners with the boys, but they're so much smaller that she does she doesn't mind it. But it seems like we just don't have enough in our adult classes. Yeah, we're starting to actually get more women in our yeah, class, I think in our adult I mean, class. I think when we have I can four. say yeah. we have three, it's still yeah. too small. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> I our. We have, I think, four at the most in, of women in our class at one time. We're still a brand new school, also. Uh, but the fact that we have four women now, I'm like, okay, tell your friends, <laughs> like, bring yeah. more. Like, come on, yeah. like, trust me, you guys. You guys obviously got bit by the bug. Let's let's bring more. You know, is that has been your experience too? It has. I think it it takes a while to grow a women's program. Just kind of like any gym, you start off small, and it it's gonna. Uh, word of mouth, I think, is the most powerful um, ad compared to anything else. And it will grow, but it does take time. And it takes someone that is willing to put in that time and to um, entice women to join. Because, you know, it's it's hard to step on a mat when all you see are sweaty men trying to choke each other. No, it's true. Have So as, as a woman, I'm sure you get this question a lot. Like, what is it? what is it like rolling with? with uh men do you feel uh that you're like we talked to our friend ashley villanueva and she talks about how sometimes she felt like guys went too easy she's like look you're not doing me any justice by and i've been accused of that yeah and he's been accused by by someone also a higher belt and she's she straight up stopped the role and was like what are you doing well in my defense so i i've had the i've had the whole gamut of experience (laughs) so with my daughters right i roll with them like i like I feel comfortable rolling with women. I have no problems with it. I did roll with a higher belt when I was a white belt and that did not go so well. You remember that? In yep, Japan. Yeah. In Japan, that roll stopped. And then I was accused of rolling too hard. So then it made me like, well, you know where I'm a little hesitant. I don't want to be the guy that rolls too hard. So I, I don't know. Sometimes it just feels like a crapshoot. So, so what is it like in your eyes then? I get both sides. Um, I think, as a competitor, I get more of the going too hard, um, especially because I'm on the smaller side. So pretty much every guy is going to be bigger than me. 99% of the men are going to be bigger than me. So I do get more of them going too hard. Um, but when it comes to like new white belts, before I even roll with them, I kind of tell them, like, I'm going to give what you give. So if you go hard, I'm going to go hard. And you're going to lose because I know what I'm doing. Um, and, and you know, if you just kind of set the tone that way, I think at, as the female and as the upper belt, like, I think we have a lot of power on, you know, if, if you grab a grip and it's like a death grip, they're going to respond to that. If, if you're just like kind of loose, they're, they ease off. It's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's been challenging for myself to learn how to roll with, new men as well um just because they it's not even that they're going too hard with women they're going too hard in general they're they're it, they're just spazzy white belts and they don't know any better and so they just need someone to teach them that you know flailing around on the mats isn't going to get you any better yeah we have a we we are our professor now is a high school wrestling coach so he has a lot of uh former students that were wrestlers for him and whatnot coming in and they're brand new white belts but they have that wrestling mentality of like go 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 smash 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 right and i'm like look man that's great for when you when you get further in jujitsu right using that mindset is going to get you far 
as a brand new white belt, I know how to counter it perfectly. And like, you're just going to get caught and stuff left and right because you don't understand how to hang out and to chill out for a second and figure out what's going on. If you're constantly pressing forward, it's you're, you're going to get caught one day. Just relax. He got, he got mauled by a bear in Japan one time. He was, I think the guy was maybe in his early twenties. John was in his early forties at the time. And, and literally, I watched John with his eyes plead for, like, mercy. For I just wanted to tap. Like, can I not tap out, but, like, tap Travis. Like, you're in. You're in. <laughs> but ha- have you uh, rolled with uh, – can you tell the difference with someone that has grappling experience and someone that has, like, no grappling experience when you first roll with them, too? Oh, definitely. Uh, I know if they have some kind of martial arts background or are a wrestler because they aren't as tentative and they're – they just kind of want to crush you. Like – they want to prove to themselves that they know something versus I feel like brand new white belts tend to be very hesitant. They don't even know like where to grab or what to do versus wrestlers are like trying to like grab you and pin you down. Yeah. So I, I talk, we talk about this all the time uh, when we roll with brand new white belts, perfect, perfect examples. Like you just said, right. When someone has grappling experience, they're trying to prove something and I don't know why, Right. It's like, look, man, you just started. It's OK to, to know that not know anything, you know, but when uh, I've rolled with people that have zero experience in martial arts or grappling, I'm always trying to encourage them like, no, attack. It's OK. It's OK. Like, I'll stop you if anything hurts. I'll, I'll coach you through some stuff. You know what I mean? And it's like getting them into that mindset of like, you're not going to hurt me because I won't let you get to the point where you hurt me. You know what I mean? But as we're a wrestler. They're 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 putting themselves in yeah. a position to hurt someone. You they're know. nonstop. They're they're pretty. That spazzy white belt is a real thing. <laughs> yes. Have you have you ran into spazzy white belts at, uh, of women also, or are they kind of the same mindset of like I I just don't know what I'm doing? They they are spazzy, but most of the time they don't have as much weight behind it, so it doesn't feel as dangerous. You know, when you have a 200 pound man that are trying to rip your legs off your and just like going back and forth being spazzy versus 130 pound female one is a little bit more dangerous and I think that's why you hear about the white belt men um and and there are like women of all sizes that and you'll get it um spazziness in pretty much all of them I feel like every even I I I was lucky because I didn't get called a spazzy white belt I just had a lot of energy because I was only like 120 pounds going against 160 pound guys. So it didn't really phase them as compared to like in reverse. Um, but I mean, I think it just comes with learning how to calm down and how to kind of be okay not knowing and be okay losing. I think most people go on the mats and they don't want to, obviously they don't want to get tapped. They don't want to get their guard passed or get mounted. And so then they try everything. And so that's when the brute strength comes out or like the flexibility and the speed. And that's what turns into a spazzy white belt. You know, one thing I learned, uh, and it took me a while with the brand new spazzy white belts is don't try anything complicated because they don't respond the way you expect someone to respond. That's been doing jujitsu for a hot minute. So keep it simple if you're going up against a brand new white belt because they don't know how to respond. That took me a while to get. I was like, that guy didn't move like he was supposed to move. <laughs> what is he doing right now? And I was like, all right, all right, I got to tone it down. You're like, that that uh, Kimura to Omoplata didn't work because the guy just literally stood up. I'm like, that's not safe. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, they don't know how to respond. You know, they don't they don't respond like we think they're going to. Looking back now, what what, what was White Belt Katie like? 
Um, I was really aggressive. I think I won a lot of my matches. Um, I'm a, I'm predominantly a guard player now, and but I did I didn't start playing guard until blue belt. Um, so at white belt, I had this great bulldozer double leg where I just would run through them and get them, only because I was more aggressive and ended up on top, and then <laughs> and then it was done. <laughs> I think. Um, like, I was also really, really dedicated. I uh, started doing two-a-days a month in. Um, I would go, my gym was um, just like 10 minutes away from where I worked. And so I'd go, I'd roll, and then come back to work. I feel really bad for the people I worked with because uh, I was a little sweaty and probably a little stinky, but, um, like, I loved it. And I just, I had that jujitsu bug and jujitsu was so new. I had done Taekwondo as a kid, but that's nothing like jujitsu. I had, so everything was new. Like I was like, oh, this is an arm bar. Oh, that's a Kimura. Oh, that's an Americana. Like it was, it was like the little kid in the candy shop and seeing all the different kinds of candies and your face just keeps lighting up brighter and brighter because it's all new. And and how have you how have you changed since your white belt days? Do you still have that like when you see something cool, you're like, oh my god, that's like that candy, or or do you more like, how am I going to incorporate? Can I incorporate that in my game? I don't know if I'm going to take that or not. I think I'm more the latter. I I do really get excited about jujitsu, but now when I see something new, it's more of a okay, how does this work for my game, and how how can I work this? Or it's like, okay, well, I'm already doing that. I could ch- kind of change it. Um, and, and like, I, I get really excited, but it, it unfortunately, I'm now at the point where I don't see new stuff. It's more fine tuning. You know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, at White Belt, there's such a learning curve. And then you, you still learn a lot of blue and purple. And now I'm a brown belt. And a lot of it is just making things tighter and making things more um efficient how does promotions work for you um is it we've had various different i guess we've had different instructors now over the last three years so they're always different for us so i'm just wondering is it typically where um you guys just have like um like a a large open mat and you just go through a bunch of people and then the instructor sees what you know or is it like strictly one-on-one with the instructor so when I was down in Texas, I tested for my blue belt. So I, ha- I did have a blue belt test. Um, and then my purple belt was a complete shock. Um, I, I came in as a four-stripe blue belt. And I mentally put another year at least on it. Because when you change gyms, it t- typically adds more time. So it, And it was just after training one day, Coach Foster put a purple belt on like a few weeks before American Nationals and was like, here you go. Um, and then um, same with Brown Belt. It, so how Coach Foster does it, it's more individual. It's not, There's no test. There's no gauntlet or anything like that. You know, he sees the work you're putting in. He sees um, your progress um, and, and then will reward it or not. Yeah. That's, that's nice. I mean, I think I like that because I get a ton of anxiety because if they're like, Hey, you're testing next week. I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to show up what day I'm not coming in. Like, it's not going to happen. I wish I didn't know when you're actually, you know, being observed and tested. Like, that's why I was curious. I was wondering how that goes. 
Did you do you have a like set test? Because when I tested for a blue belt, I got like a piece of paper and I was like, I know these things. I don't know the names of these things. <laughs> and I, I had to ask the guy that I was dating at the time, I was like, What is this? I don't especially because some of the like throws are in Japanese and I'm like, I don't know what this is. Well, we had seen our um the first time we had some people get promoted, they flew our the guy we were under from Japan into the school. And it was it was a little bit random. They just kind of like pulled him onto the mat, had him show a couple things, and then it was like promotion. Second time, we knew we were getting tested, but they didn't tell us like this is what's going to happen. So what ended up happening is it was four of us on the mat, and we partnered up. And they were like, all right, let me see five throws. Let me see five takedowns. Let me see five submissions from this. All right, now you need to get out of that. And you just – it was an hour. And I was like, man, I'm glad I didn't know everything they were going to ask or I wouldn't have shown up. So next time I'm like, I don't know if I want to be there, but I don't know what to expect on the next one because we're under a new black belt now. Yeah. What do you prefer? Do you prefer the testing or do you prefer just the appreciation of, hey, I've I've noticed that you are killing it. Here go. Here you go. I am honestly torn. I really appreciated, I think, from white to blue to really know if you're at that level. And um, and I did appreciate that. And. But I, I think it's very subjective because especially in the upper belt, it's just because your one aspect of your game isn't as far along, something else can be way further because we all have our different games that we like. So I I, I honestly prefer the more individual aspect. And I and I also think that there's a lot more that goes into promotions than or should than what you know in jujitsu. I think it should also be you know, how you hold yourself on the mats and, and, um, you know, how you're giving back to the gym and to the community. I, you know, I think, um, being a black belt says more than I know everything in jujitsu, not that you ever do, but it, it should also say something about you as a person. I'd agree. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about that with Rory Dean. Um, Rory Dean, one of our questions was because obviously he's a very, uh, prolific person in jujitsu and he has he has everything out there right? you can watch black to to blue uh in promotions and, and i was like i was like is it only skill-based stuff or when especially when it comes to black because now you're a leader people look to you as like right we call, you get a whole different title in, in jujitsu because of it and the, he said the same thing he's like it's skill but i'm not going to promote someone that doesn't hold my values and what i feel like a jujitsu practitioner should be you know, so have you ever ran into someone where you're like, uh, how did you get your belt? Because you're kind of a jerk. <laughs> um, I definitely have, um, you know, being a black belt doesn't magically make you a good human. Um, and, and unfortunately, especially as a lower belt, you think so you look up and idolize these black belts and then you start to learn more about some of them. And, I mean, there's a reason you hear about all the terrible things some black belts do, you know, taking advantage of their female students or their youth students and, and like, yeah, not all black belts are good people. And it really sucks because they're in positions of power and they have this professor title and they don't live up to what a black belt should be. Yeah. And that's difficult too, right? Because it's kind of like the the more variety you get as a practitioner, the more you understand what a good black belt is or a good instructor is and what a bad instructor is, right? Because just because you're 
a world-class competitor doesn't mean you're a world-class teacher. Just because you're a world-class teacher doesn't mean you're a world-class competitor, right? Like, you can you can have your own lane. And not every black belt's going to be, you know, a world champ or whatnot. But they can probably coach the crap out of a kid's class, right? Where a lot of black belts don't want to do that. So what do, you, what do you look for, especially after having someone like James Foster? What, do you, what are your things you look for in a black belt to be like, that, that's it right there. That's, that's a good guy. Um, I mean, obviously, jujitsu, um, I can respect a lot of people's jujitsu without respecting them as a person. Um, but I think when it comes to like the black belts that I look up to, it's what are they doing for the community? What, how are they using that black belt to not just better themselves, but to better those around them? I think being a black belt, and if you're staying in the, in the jujitsu community, you should be trying to help the lower belts, help the kids become better and and live your life as if they're looking up to you because they are and you're you're not only here for the jujitsu you're a role model like these there are kids that look up to you that see what you say see what you're doing and then say I want to be like that and if, if you think about that then you should always be putting your best foot forward you should be constantly trying to be the best person you can be and that's really what I think being a true black belt means. I'd agree. And somebody with kids that are in it, you know, when we switch different black belts, I'm watching them. I'm like, do I want my kids coming here? Let me, let me judge, you know? So I have my class and then I watch their class and I'm like, I'll judge hands down. And it'll take a while. And I'm like, all right, they're good. They're good guys. Yeah. It's like, uh, Mikey and, uh, Gio Martinez, they just had that fight to win. And afterwards Mikey was like, you know, he's like, kids look up to you. You can't be talking trash or, about someone in this and that and you know he was like very upset that Gio Martinez was was you gotta look it up but there was a bunch of trash talking and I feel like when it comes to competition wise or when you're trying to sell a fight or something like that like it's to be expected there's gonna be a little bit of trash talk you know what I mean like especially because it gets people excited they're like oh there's conflict right if they're like buddy buddy the whole time it's kind of like Okay, well, I mean, are, are they going to hug the whole time when they roll or something? <laughs> Have you ran into a lot of trash talking because being such a heavy competitor? No, um, honestly, um, I've become friends with a lot of the women that I've competed against, both ones I've beat and ones I've lost to. You know, the um, it's a small women community. Like, there's not many women competitors. I've competed against the same people numerous times. Um, and so you... There, there hasn't been much trash talk at all. Um, like I, I've dealt with like anonymous trash talk a lot, but no one, no like face to it. It's a lot of like keyboard warriors and, and it's not the people that I'm actually competing against. I think especially as a female competitor, they know what goes into competing and putting yourself out there and they haven't r- really stooped to that level, I guess. Yeah, because you have a pretty large following too, especially on like social media and with your blog and stuff like that. So I'm sure there's there's probably that those toxic guys out there, like, oh my god, like how do you have this and I don't, or like you don't deserve this, I deserve this, and it's, I'm sure you ran into that too, right? I get, um, especially when I lose on a big stage. Um, you know, I lost my last fight to win, and it was the first fight to win that I lost, but it was. Um, it was a, a pretty bad loss. Um, I took it really hard, but then I had people um, going into my DMs, like doubting my belt and doubting my technique and all this stuff. And it's 
it really sucks. Um, but I, I guess it's kind of to be, um, like it's, it's going to happen. I, I have like almost 15,000 followers now. Um, and it's, it's just something that I have to get used to. And it sucks that I do, but it's in this day and age, people love to tear other people down to build themselves up. That's truth right there. So, so how do, how do you deal with it? Cause I'm sure there's other women out there that are in the same position as you that don't vocalize it or whatnot. So how, how do you deal with it then? Block. <laughs> that block button baby <laughs> I, just, I i said something after my last fight to win um and and I, I typically i don't even give them i'll delete the comment i'll delete the dm and i block them they're not worth my time they they i have so much more going in my life than theirs obviously that they're so concerned with what i'm doing but i'm not going to give them my time and my um patience to try to prove them wrong. Um, you know, I, I've had a lot of people tell me that I'm, I wouldn't even get this far. And obviously I have. Um, and that, and if, if, you, if I acknowledge them, it gives them what they want. They want the attention. They, they're trolling. Like they want to get an emotional response out of me. So I don't give it to them. Yeah, that, that's pretty smart because I'm sure people feed into it and they, they take online criticism way too far. You know what I mean? It's like it's people on the Internet. People people find it easy to just say whatever they want on the Internet because, like you said, they're keyboard warrior. They're behind their phones. They're behind their keyboards. They're, yeah, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Luckily, we haven't faced any super bad trolling on ours. Right, because the nice thing about jujitsu is like, like if you want to talk trash, you can. You could just come roll with me, and if you kick my butt, then it's deserved. But if I kick your butt, just know that you talk trash to someone that kicked your ass. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what you mentioned earlier that when you see new things, you're wondering how do you throw it into your game? What is your game right now? Um, I'm predominantly a guard player, so I, I really love guard. So it depends if we're talking gi or no gi. Um, so in Nogi, I love leg locks. So I, I play a lot of like shin to shin guard to get into um, like outside Ashi and honey hole and all that stuff. And then in um, in the Gi, I play a lot of uh, lasso. Hmm. So what do you prefer, Gi or Nogi? Uh, well, it's summer right now. <laughs> so I prefer Nogi. I can relate. These are hot. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I, I kind of go through phases. It depends what's more exciting at the time. Um, I, I really enjoy Nogi right now, um, especially with IBGF allowing leg locks. Like, I, I love that any attacks from the waist down are legal. Like, heel hooks, outside toe holds, all of that, it's wonderful. Um, so right now, um, I really, really love Nogi. But I also think that has a lot to do with that Gi feels heavy with when it's hot and and so in the summers i tend to not like gi as much so, so what, ask me in december and i'll probably say gi <laughs> so what, what what was your reaction when ibjf came out saying you know heel hooks are and leg locks are you know authorized now were you like jumping up and down like yes i was like finally it i i felt like it had to be coming um and i'm really glad that they changed the rules i think um it was really silly that at least brown and black belts couldn't do heel hooks in no gi. I, un I completely understand why they wouldn't want them in the gi and they don't want reaping in the gi. But if, if we're 
brown and black belts, we should already know how to defend that and how to deal with it. And if you don't, then you should go back to the gym and get to work. Wait, so you can reap a nogi now in IBGF? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you still couldn't reap. Yeah, no, you can reap. You can do everything. You still can't do like the neck cranks and, and all that, but or the the spinal locks. Yeah, so you know, like twisters and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe one day. Maybe one day you'll see a, a crazy twister in IBJF. So do you think they did that just out of your, your curiosity? Do you think they did that to kind of keep up with like the ADCCs and, you know, the fight to wins where they allow these kind of things? Do you think they kind of did that to stay modernized? Um, honestly, I'm not sure. I think that probably has something to do with it. Um, but I also think that, you know, 10 years ago, leg locks weren't as much of a thing. So it it was hard to have that pull to allow something that can really injure an athlete. And now it's, if you're not studying leg locks, you're really far behind. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. It's that jujitsu has just kind of evolved into leg locks are part of it. When do you think they should start uh, teaching leg locks in a class? Should that be white belt, blue That's belt? A good question. White belt. hundred percent. You really? White belt. Um, it depends on what leg lock it is. But, I mean, ankle locks are legal for white belt, so they should be learning them at white belt. Um, at our gym, we allow blue belts to start working knee bars, and then purple belts get toe holds, and then brown belts get the slicers. And then black belt is uh, heel hooks with supervision. Yeah, I uh, I accidentally knee barred a white belt the other day, and I was like, I, I was like, I'm so sorry. I just realized I knee barred you. <laughs> that was not my intention. I, I think I locked it in, and then they tapped, and I was like, it was like, I, I snapped too. I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, don't tell professor. Don't tell professor. Well, I remember when we uh, they taught toe holds for like a week, and I was really excited for that. And then it was like, sorry, you can't do that unless you're like four stripe blue belt. And I was like, well, what the hell? I'm gonna forget it now. <laughs> I think it's important to train even the moves that you can't do before you get to that belt, because otherwise, especially as a competitor, if I waited until I was a brown belt to start working knee bars, I'd be so far behind. And, and, um, obviously you have to pick who's safe to train leg locks with, because while it is just a straight arm lock for the knee, you blow out your knee. It's a little bit more serious than your arm. Yeah. And it's like we talked about earlier, right? Like I put an e-bar on that kid and I felt comfortable locking in an e-bar because I know what it takes to, to finish an e-bar. It doesn't take very much. Right. But where I snapped to was, is like, he could have reacted to that very badly. You know what I mean? Like he could have turned the wrong way or not have tapped at all. And, you know, and, and a lapse of judgment could have could have been really bad. And I think that's what it comes down to also, especially for white belts. And to your point is they should be learning these things early on, not only for their safety, but for others safety, too. Right. That way they know, like, well, this is what it's supposed to feel like. And they're not tapping to this. So I'm just going to go ahead and release this and not not have that white bell mindset of i locked it in time to crank it you know what i mean well remember i didn't know what a knee bar was in japan and i was uh i don't know three or four stripe white belt and i was going up against a guy i don't know what he was because he was in uh, no gi i think he was a wrestler and he knee barred me five or six times in a row and finally i told him i was look man you're gonna get this all night because i have no idea what you're doing so you might want to just move on to something else and he was like all right <laughs> so what is it like when you experience uh uh, like a new technique or you, you get tapped during competition are you like do you or do you record all of your roles or do you do 
you kind of just play it back in your mind like what did i do wrong that's interesting um a lot of it especially i think at the brown adult level is less about what you're doing wrong and what your opponent's doing right you know it's 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 a game of inches at this point you know you can grip a little bit too low and you know that, that can be all they need um I try to not, you know, I, I lose a lot. I win a lot. Uh, it just comes with competing. And I try not to put too much pressure on myself, you know, um, especially um, as, as, a, as a competitor, you go out there. I have eight-minute matches as a brown belt. But those eight-minute matches isn't a good representation of all my jiu-jitsu and what I know. And I have to keep that in perspective because otherwise I'd be sitting there, like, paralyzed and, oh, I, I really messed up. I really messed up because even on the matches that I win, there's things that I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on this. And I focus on that. I'm like, okay, what do I, what am I going to do for the, to improve versus what submission did I get caught in or, or the mistakes I made? I try to put it, it's kind of like that mental training. I try to put a positive spin on it where it's like, all right, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to get better at this rather than, oh, I suck at that. Yeah, that's that's super interesting because I feel like people, when we first started, we videoed almost every single role yeah, we had, we did, yeah. and I felt like it honestly was a huge like game changer for us because... I'm like, why am I laying there for five minutes? Yeah, you move, think you're doing move. something. <laughs> you think you're like crushing it, and then all of a sudden you're like, you're like, oh man, I actually didn't do anything for a solid 45 seconds. No wonder nothing moved. You know what I mean? And uh, so... When we, I, I tell brand new people like, hey, when you first start, make sure that you kind of like film your roles or or you you understand like what's going on because when you play it back, you'll start. Yeah, that's my dog. This will be in the YouTube video. This is my dog, hey, Blaze. I'm, I'm very distracted by a cute dog. <laughs> you, you put a cute dog in front of me and I'm not going to listen to yeah. that. Like, this was oh. a jujitsu podcast. Now it is a puppy podcast. <laughs> no, yeah. So do you, do you, uh, what what advice would you give like a, a brand new white belt coming into jiu-jitsu? Like I always tell them like, you know, take it easy, film your rolls. I think it's a very important thing to see what you look like rolling. That way you understand what it feels like also. What would your piece of advice be to a brand new white belt? I would tell them to start a jiu-jitsu journal. Um, every time, like after class, I, I'm a huge nerd. Um, and um, so when I was a white belt after class, I would write down the technique that I learned. And I would draw pictures and they were terrible and I probably missed a bunch, but it helped me retain it better than if it just goes in and then out. Um, so then I was able to kind of focus on what we were actually learning. And then I would think about the roles and I would list three things that I wanted to improve on and three things I think I did that were good. And I did that after every class. And I think that is a huge component of how I progressed as quickly as I did. So your full-time job is jujitsu, right? So from coaching and then competing, at what point did you realize, oh man, I don't need to work a nine to five. Like I can make this a living. At what point was that? Uh, well, you know, jujitsu is my full-time job, but I have a very supportive husband who helps pay the bills. If I did not have him, I would not be able to do this full-time. Um, it is hard to, especially during COVID, it's very hard to make money in jujitsu. Um, but I did, like, I love jujitsu. I love teaching. 
I love pretty much everything that there is to do with jujitsu. Um, I got my first big sponsor as a blue belt and um, I kind of had this kind of dumb idea to like go full time. And since then I've been full time. <laughs> so, but you haven't looked back obviously because it was, is at that point where you're like, I'm just going to do it. It was kind of one of those things that I wanted to give everything. I didn't want to have regrets on, well, how good could I have been had I been training full time and, and um, focusing more on it. And so that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I mean, the goal eventually was to open up a gym and then COVID happened. And now I'm kind of like, I don't know if I want to open up a gym, but um, I, I definitely, I want to share my passion with people. And that's part of the reason I have the blog, part of the reason I'm, I'm going to be starting a podcast because like, it's just something that inspires me and just fuels that fire inside me. And I just want to share it with everyone. And I, you know, I, I could be working a nine to five and making a lot more money. And, um, but I, I think there's more to life than money and you should chase your passions. So what has been your biggest victory in jujitsu? And it doesn't have to be like a competition wise, but like what, what was the, your proudest moment? Is it getting someone into jujitsu, winning a competition, learning a move, getting promoted? Like what, what was your biggest moment? Honestly, getting my purple belt. It was one of those things, everyone makes those jokes about um, blue belts disappearing. And when I was a white belt, the first upper belt that I saw was a purple belt and brown and black just felt so not attainable. I was like, I just want to get my purple belt. And so when I got my purple belt, it felt like I was finally more legit. It was, it, it just felt so good to get it. And then you know, at Purple Vault, I started doing more pro fights and fight to wins. And it, it just, Purple Vault was such a huge growth for me that I, I really enjoyed Purple Vault. So I have a question. Since you do jiu-jitsu full-time, do you take, um, as far as training, are you like on a regimented diet? And do you do like any meditation? Something like mental and physical? Or is that something like you really watch? I, I typically do. I, I eat pretty clean in general just because I like how my body performs eating cleaner. But, you know, I like food. Uh, so I, I think everything in moderation. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say it's really, really strict because I will like have a beer sometimes or, you know, have that cupcake because I think life is too short to limit yourself from everything good. Um, but I do take my diet really seriously. Um, you know, there are weight classes in jujitsu, so I have to make weight. Um, and when it comes to like meditation, um, I am a really, I've tried meditation. I'm really bad. <laughs> like, I don't know how people shut down that voice inside your head, but I yeah. can't. Um, but I do do a lot of like yoga and, um, and that kind of stuff. And I'll, I'll supplement a lot of my training with like strength training and, and yoga and um like bike riding and that kind of thing yeah that's that's a it's always interesting hearing what people do outside of jiu-jitsu to improve their jiu-jitsu like because we've heard multiple people talk about different things on how they feel what you should do and yoga is like always almost always one of the things right because it is physical and spiritual right like deep breaths clearing the mind and whatnot and 
and pushing your body a little bit further. I tried jujitsu or uh, uh, yoga one time. It was terrible. I'm not even gonna lie to you. I I was, I was the guy that was teaching me though was so. He was so supportive. It was fantastic. I was like sitting there, like struggling. I was like, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh!" And he's like, "You're doing great, Travis. Keep pushing. That's awesome." I need and to I go like, get you to do a hot one with me. Hot yoga? Yeah. Did you prefer hot yoga or just normal yoga? I love hot yoga. Me too. I've been me too. Cute hot yoga since before COVID, so I miss it a lot. But I I love it because you can. I always overstretch though. I'm a very very flexible person. And I'm always like, oh, wow, look how look how deep I can go. And then the next day, I'm like, oh, my hamstrings. Why did I do that? I should not have gone that far. They walk over and help me. They're like, <laughs> and I'm like, whatever. Their screws holding that in. They're, they're, like, they're like, John, we need you to bend up. This is rock bottom. This is, this is all I have. Like yoga for rocks. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I follow that one. I'm like, you know, whatever. So, John. I, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So, my husband is probably the least flexible person you've ever met i'm right. not exaggerating at all um i started making him do yoga and he can finally kind of touch his toes okay wow yeah that's john in the morning in the pre-class stretches or warm-ups uh they're like all right reach down and touch your toe john just sits straight up he's like he's just like an l he's like this is, this is me touching my toes <laughs> i'm horrible like I, I can't help it i've tried and he has and he has one fake shoulder and then yeah. one shoulder that's about to be replaced also so it's a little bit of a dis- it's a little bit unfair to tell you the truth at home. If you guys are making it this far in the podcast, I don't like how John is part mechanical. Okay, he's a bionic <laughs> man. All I'm right, like, you can keep working that all you want. Like, I'm like I'm like twisting. I'm like this Kamora should be tapping. Like, it ain't ever gonna break. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever rolled against someone where you're like, uh, we mentioned Riley earlier. She's like a 16 year old girl that's in our class, former gymnast. And double jointed, double jointed in every Elbows, possible everything. point, and so you'll get her in an arm bar, and her arm—it's like it her just... hand's about to touch her shoulder. You know what I mean? You're like, "How is this happening?" <laughs> Have you ever rolled against someone that was so flexible? You're like, "I can't even submit you because there's just no way." Uh, I definitely have. Uh, women are definitely more flexible than men, so you know, some women you're just like omoplatas. I they. I tapped them to the position because I don't feel them because I just, my, my shoulders are very flexible. Um, and then toe holds the same thing. I, I don't feel toe holds. Like they, they just, I don't know. It just, <laughs> it, it, it just isn't a thing that I feel. And it's one of those things that if I feel it, I think it's gonna be too late. So I just, I, I respect the position. If I can't get out of it, I'll tap to it. And I, I've gone against other women like that. And I mean, uh, all I have to say is that, you stop the blood of the brain, they're gonna go out. <laughs> <laughs> you you can't be flexible on a on a carotid artery. Like, exactly. <laughs> don't hold your breath. So yeah, when tell I, that when story. I, when I first started jujitsu, I didn't know what that meant. So when people were choking me out, I was like, I'll just hold my breath. I can hold my breath for a good minute and a half. And I'm like, what is going on? I'm passing out. And they were like, bro, it's not your breath, it's blood. And I was like, why didn't nobody tell me that? <laughs> I would try those first few months. I was like, I'll hold my breath for a good minute and a half. I got this. And I'm like passing out. <laughs> it's like, what was, have you had those kind of moments where it's kind of like, I was completely wrong on what that actually is like. Like his, his, I, I, I just hold my breath. Fitter. They were like, do you want to try jujitsu? And I was like, sure, I'll try it. But yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. You didn't warn me. I didn't. I didn't. I'm sorry. I was like, have you had any of those moments of like aha moments? You're like, oh, that's what that is. Well, 
a lot of leg locks are like that because you're attacking something and then you feel it elsewhere. Yeah, it's like, like a heel hook. hook. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. It's like, okay, I don't feel anything. And then all of a sudden you need, you're like, oh, that's <laughs> what that is. Yeah, yeah that, that was probably when we, when we first learned uh, heel hooks for the first time. They're like, our professor asked us, he's like, what do you think you're going to feel this? I was like, uh, my heel? They're like, nope, you're going to break your knee, you do that. And I was like, what? And the first time I got put in a heel hook, I was like, oh, my God. That's like, that's like so weird to me, you know? And we had a seminar with Nathan Orchard. <clears throat> and that man is incredible at, at leg locks, right? And he was teaching us one thing, and it was interesting because some some people felt it in their knee uh, for – I think it was like a calf slicer thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Some people felt it in their knee, and some people felt it as a calf slicer. And I was like, well, I feel it in my, my knee. He's like, I, I don't – he's like, I wish I could tell you why some people feel it differently, but that's just anatomy. Like some people have different flexibilities, and, you know, their bodies are just different. And uh, that was a big eye-opener for me too was, was like, oh, well, just because – he feels it here doesn't mean I'm going to feel it here. I need to still pay attention to my body and be like, oh, crap, that's that kind of hurts there. You know, I got put in a uh, a scarf hold submission the other day, and I was like, this sucks. I don't feel anything but, like, my crushing chest right now, and I'm just going to go ahead and tap for that. Oh, that's a good thing. Talking about pressure, when we first started jujitsu, we talked about how pressure we would tap to pressure. You know yeah, what I mean? How have you ever? Obviously, have you ever tapped to pressure? And what? How do you combat it now? I am really stubborn. I have hurt ribs not tapping to pressure. Because Wait, you broke ribs? No, no, no. But I oh. have like like bruised them because I am stubborn and I'm like, this is there is no technique behind this. I am not tapping to this. Um, I, I would not recommend that if, <laughs> for if those at home. Hurts, just tap like. It's not worth it. Nothing is worth feeling injured for a couple weeks. Um, but oh, I, I will take that back. I have now. As a as a lower <laughs> as a lower belt, I had it. Um, but Coach Foster actually tapped me to pressure once. Um, uh, Three hundred pounds. And, yeah. Uh, he was joking that he was going to do it, and uh, he had me in case of Katami and. I was laughing, so it just kept making it worse. <laughs> of course, when you're laughing, you can't stop laughing, and then I couldn't breathe. <laughs> and I was like, "All right, I can't, I can't anymore." Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm the so only sorry. pressure I've tapped to is Coach Foster, but he's 300 pounds and six five and just jacked. So I'm okay with it. We would tap to neon belly. It would be like it wouldn't even be very long at the I, I beginning. I tapped to pressure as a blue belt, and that was in San Diego at uh, Chula Vista Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And the owner is probably three hundred pounds, and it was my first night there, so I don't know if he was just really working me. But I was like, uh, "That pressure is unbelievable. I'm about to die." Like you know, it's just what just just what happened. But as a white belt, when we first started, I tapped to pressure, and then I looked around the room, and I'm like, "Wait, wait, wait. nobody else is tapping to pressure." All right, I'm done. I'm not tapping this anymore. <laughs> you get that? You... For me, it was it was like when people were doing it, it was all these guys that were bigger, and I felt like it it was just a jerk move. So my ego got in the way, and I was like, "No, I'm going to get out of this before I tap." And so I did. 
and now there you go. You're like you're like well, you didn't get me. Gotcha. Yeah, it's kinda, exactly. It's kind of like a bread, yeah. It's kind of like a bread cutter from someone being in your guard. Like you're you're not really gonna tap them. It's really just a dick move. You're like yeah. You can have your forearm across my throat, but if I just extend my hips, you don't really have anything there. And when we first started, that's what they would always tell us. They're always like, "Don't try to bread cutter someone when you're in their guard. That's just an asshole move. It's like you don't need to do that." Like, Especially if you have like 50 pounds on them, and you're just like, "Really? Yeah, that's, exactly." You can't open my guard. You have to do this. <laughs> All right, I got a question for you: Are wrist locks dirty or not? Mm. Am I the one doing it? Or Hold am on, I the you're the one doing it. it. You're the one doing it. You better, you better think about this, not? Katie. There's going to be some people on the internet that might not like this answer. <laughs> I think it's a valid move. I think it's, it, it is time efficient. You know, especially, like, I will finish moves with wrist locks instead of finishing the full move. Like, you know, like an omoplata. Okay, well, that, that wrist is just right there. And then I don't have to put through forth so much effort um i i don't really think any jujitsu is dirty i think you know you should be aware of all the moves um i will joke about like my husband loves wrist locks me he, too yeah he, us too i consider them an Michael equalizer take his back just so he can wrist I, lock I do that too yeah when they go for it i'm like all right got you gotcha ass <laughs> <laughs> but to me it's an equalizer like that's yeah. why i use it if they're bigger stronger younger then if I make them respect the wrist, then I have room. So that's why I like them a lot. I and they know now. I think this way are dirty. I've uh, never gotten anyone with that. That's dangerous to me. It, it just feels mm. like a, a move that you do to like when you're bigger than people. Versus this one feels more legit, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have an issue with wrist locks. Um, See, wrist locks are good, people, for those that are listening. I'm not dirty. They're good. <laughs> I can't, I can't call wrist locks dirty and then try to heel hook people. <laughs> it's like it's like, it's like it's like it's like why would you ignore point five percent of the body? You know, so, <laughs> no, don't the, leave your wrist there if you don't but, want it wrist locked. You know what's so funny? My favorite thing about wrist locks is John's the one that that got me into wrist locks, and my favorite thing about and them a couple of is 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 the moment of realization of like, oh. <laughs> That's a wrist lock. <laughs> I better get out of there. I love that is my. I don't even finish wrist locks. I just like watching people like, oh crap, like my wrist is about to break. And th- like you were talking about the the pushing the fingers back instead of pushing them down, right? In a wrist lock. For those at home uh, that are listening and that, that that don't know, she was talking about pushing the hand back as pushing the hand down towards like the inside of your arm. Uh, the only wrist lock that I've ever learned from that pushing the hand back is when someone collar grips you and you grab elbow and kind of push the hand in and you can finish it either or way. But I've never been really successful in that. Most of my wrist locks come from people in side control or like a Kimura or finishing a move that should be something else with a wrist lock, right? Like, yeah, you're not really tapping to this arm bar, but if I just do this, there you go. I got you. <laughs> exactly. So what's what's the next for for Katie, what's what's up and coming for you? I uh, have the Charleston Open in August, uh, and then Pans, Nogi Worlds, Master Worlds, and Gi Worlds. Wow! So what what do you prefer? Do you per, uh, uh, prefer IBJF or like a fight to win? Um, I prefer fight to win. Um, I am I'm now a ref for IBJF, uh, so I've been doing a lot of IBJF that way um and and i i really enjoy that i think 
Um, for all the female listeners that are brown or black belts, we need more women refs out there. That's, um, and I, I really enjoy representing women um, as a ref. Uh, so right now, I guess I would say IBJJF, um, but I, I don't really care. You know, I, I think your jujitsu should be good at every rule set. And I've never turned down any fights because of the rule set. Um, and I won't. Um, so any. <laughs> Have you competed in Naga? I haven't. Um, but that has a lot to do with it's hard to find people for local tournaments. Mm. Have, you ever had, have you ever had to deal with someone that didn't agree with your call in a tournament if you're the ref? All the time. How does that work? Always. I'm sure. I'm sure. I didn't tap. It's like, I, I saw at, the hand move. At my first, the the only time I competed, I well, I was watching a match while I was waiting. And uh, one of the guys tapped, but the ref didn't see it. And the, so the guy stopped. And then he got submitted. And, like, everyone around was like, no, that guy tapped. That guy tapped. But the ref didn't see it. And I was like, man, like, how does that work if, like, you have something like that happen? So as a competitor, I will say that you're supposed to hold on to the submission until the ref says stop. And I, and it, that can be difficult. Um, but I would highly recommend it because unfortunately there are people that will take advantage if the ref doesn't see it. Um, I haven't had that situation happen. I have had people either one don't know the rules and will ask for sweep points when it's not a sweep you know if if side control and you roll them over there's no sweep it's just a reversal there's no points for that um i'll get that kind of stuff or people yelling at me asking for takedown points when they're in a guillotine like you don't get your takedown points until you any any position you don't get points for any position until you escape the submission so if you pass someone's guard but they have you in a Kimura or whatever it is, you don't get points until you escape that Kimura. Um, and then you just get people yelling at you because their person is losing. And <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Is yeah. their coach doing all this I'm sure the coaches yelling? are way harder to deal with sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you, have you and coached any kids' classes or kids' competitions? I have. Um, that is the most nerve-wracking That's thing. That's what I was going to say because I see them I, cry afterwards, and I'm like, don't cry. You did good. Don't cry. I, I don't even mind the tears. I just don't want a kid to get hurt on my watch because, you know, we're told to stop the match as soon as that arm extends and arm bars. But what if it's not, if it's too, too late, if you're like a second late and you can hurt that, that kid's arm is now hurt for the next month. And so there's, I feel so much anxiety watching them and I'm like running on the match, making sure I see everything. <laughs> Cause whether they win or lose, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I just want them to walk off healthy. Yeah. Have you, have you ever caught yourself kind of like, Oh, I'm, I'm reffing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, like being a spectator. Yeah. You're like, you're like, man, it's a great match. Like I'm actually the person telling them like who's winning or not. Have you had one of those moments yet? No, I, I haven't. Um, I keep some like strategies to keep myself in, um, the match. So like, it depend. you know, you have the wristband on the right hand and that's for the colored gi and versus the white gi. And depending on who's on top, like I'll switch that. So that way I know who, who, who started on top, who started on bottom. So if something happened and I didn't see it, then I can be like, oh, my right hand's over my left. Okay. Now the, 
the white geese on top, so clearly they swept them. But luckily, I haven't needed that. It's I I um, take refing very seriously, and so I I'm almost I am sweating by the time I get done refing. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of steps that I take, and I'm I'm I I try to represent women very well. There aren't many re- women refs, so I almost feel like I have to do an even better job than any of the men. Um, because I'm representing all women and not just myself. Yeah. So, what was the process like to become a ref? Was it kind of difficult? Is it like an online cl- course, or is it like a minimum belt level, or what is it? So, for IBJJF, um, I refed a lot before IBJJF, but IBJJF, you have to be a brown belt. You have to take their rules course, um, and you have to get an 85 percent or better on the test, and then you become a referee trainee. And you'll go and before every event, no matter your trainee or a veteran ref, you take a rules training program. And it's another two hour like seminar type thing where they webinar, um, where they talk at you, they talk about the rules and anything that um, like that. And you have to take another test and you have to score an 85% or better to continue to be a ref. So that's how IBJJF does it. Um, Most organizations aren't that uh, committed to their referee team. Um, they just don't have the capability, I think. Um, but I, I did, I, I ref a lot in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'll be refing at the Revolution next month. Um, and I, I have taken other um, like referee uh, training courses just to get better. And then there's some organizations that are just like, all right, show up and, and go. <laughs> Hopefully you do it right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, John, you got any more questions for Katie? No, I hope you see Travis at Revolution. I'm not going to be there at Revolution. I'm sorry. We'll see. We'll talk I have, about I have a 401k I have to worry about. All right. oh, I'm not trying to get my arm man. broken by some crazy spazzy blue belt. <laughs> hey, nope. blue belts aren't quite as spazzy. Really? Oh, maybe maybe I'll compete one day then. We'll see. Yeah, we'll you see. should you should compete. I if agree. anything, you just to say that you've competed. I think you learn a lot about yourself as a jujitsu athlete when you compete. And you might learn that you love it. You might hate it and never do it again. But at least you can say, well, I tried. Hey, Katie, why you had to talk some sense into me? Maybe I'll do I it. I hope he does because I'm going to go watch. You know, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. He's like, that's the host of Elbows Tight Podcast. Make sure you try really hard so he talks about it. That was what I did was the revolution. And I was so worried about the weight. Because I watched our friends do it, and they all, like, uh, fasted, and then they all ran out of energy. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So I just – I didn't know what I'd weigh in as, so I picked uh, 195, I think. And I ended up weighing in at 181, and I was like, oh, man. But it was fun. I enjoyed it. So where where can people find you, Katie? Uh, Instagram at womenwhorollbjj, uh, womenwhorroll.com. Twitter that I really don't use, but I, I don't know how to t- tweet. Like, <laughs> um, I'm on, um, pretty much every social media at either at women who roll or at women who roll BJJ. Perfect. Well, we thank you so much for your time today. It was a blast. My face hurts from smiling and laughing so much. So thank you for that. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. I'm so glad that we finally were able to do this. It was it was way better than I was expecting, and I was expecting high things for it. So thank you so much for that. Uh, but what, I don't have anything else. John, you? 
No, thank you for the interview. It was yeah, great. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening at home. Remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes if we reach, what is it, 20? If we reach 20 five-star reviews on iTunes, then we'll release a video of me choking John, a.k.a. A open roll between John and I. If he can, yeah, I mean, it'll have to be a new one. Yeah, it'll be a new one. Let me know the date. I won't be there. <laughs> so make sure you guys like us on Facebook. Follow us on uh, Instagram. We're Elbows Tight Podcast everywhere if you guys want to check us out. Uh, and that's a pretty much it, guys. So um, thank you so much. And remember... No oil checks here. He said it. Oh, my I gosh. Because he was looking at me like that. <laughs> and uh, no oil checks here, guys. Thank you so much. We'll catch you guys later. Bye.